everyone. Welcome to our second episode of Unpacking Podcast. Today we'll be unpacking expectations. My name is Shira Donath and I have with me Ora Schreier. We are so excited to have our first interview with Dr. Rifka Press-Schwartz, who will be joining us as we discuss expectations on Jewish women in the community today. Dr. Rifka Press-Schwartz has spent more than 15 years in the field of Jewish secondary and post-secondary education. She currently serves as Associate Principal General Studies at SAR High School and has also served as Director of General Studies at the Frisch School. Dr. Schwartz earned her PhD from Princeton University, writing her dissertation about the cultural history of the Manhattan Project. She lectures widely on issues of contemporary importance in the Orthodox community. And we are going to be talking today about different issues within the Orthodox community for women specifically. And we really felt that having someone so familiar with educational models within the community, um, especially from women's experiences within the community, would be really invaluable as we try to unpack this discussion. So we're basing today off of the question we sort of ended off with last time, where we were discussing the Netflix series on Orthodox and Estes experience. And we noted this one line that she throws out there as kind of the reason for this entire leaving of the community, this whole series in and of itself, which was that God expected too much of me. And we noted just as a small criticism of this series that we actually weren't sure what the character development had been up to that point for her to make such a comment. But as Orthodox women watching the show, we could imagine how a person in that situation who is more developed as a character in the series or a real person in the real world um, would make a comment like that, that God expected too much of me. And we wanted to start off by sort of talking about what do you see as the expectations that God has for Orthodox women in general? What are the expectations that the community has for Orthodox women? And have these expectations been changing over time? And in what ways have these, ex these expectations been changing for women in the community? So first of all, I'll say good evening or whatever time of day it is when you're listening to this. Thank you for having me on. Um, I think that's a really big and important question to disaggregate the pressures that women feel in the community from what is what Hashem is expecting of us, what is what we are expecting of ourselves because of certain ideas we have of traditional gender roles or femininity, and what are the expectations we're having ourselves because we're contemporary 21st century American women and we have certain expectations that come from that, and then what are the expectations we have of ourselves because of the financial or other pressures of the lives we live. And we are, in fact, all of us walking around carrying way too many pressures all the time, but only some of those are because of what Hashem expects of us. Um, I don't know. I didn't watch Unorthodox. I don't plan to watch Unorthodox. So I can't comment on what's going on in Unorthodox, but I think it's worth separating out. So the things Hashem expects of us, we understand that women are the... Okay, so if you grew up as I did yeshivish, and then at some point you became modern Orthodox, you spend the rest of your life not knowing how to speak Hebrew, depending on which audience you're spe speaking Hebrew to. So the Italian commentator, who is either the Akedat Yitzchak or the Akedat Yitzchak, or Yitzchak Arama, um, he's not a modern and progressive figure. He's an early modern figure, says some very interesting things in his commentaries on Chumash. And one of the very interesting things he says in one place is that he talks about why a woman is given two names. There are two creations of woman in the Torah, and woman is given two names. The first time she's called Isha, and then the second time she's called Chava, right? So Isha is, she's taken from Ish, and Chava is Eim Kolchai. And he says that's because woman's primary responsibility in the world is to be Isha, parallel to Ish, just like he was created by Hashem to be an Obed Hashem, she was created to be an Obed Hashem, and her second and secondary responsibility is to be Chava, is to be Em Kochai, and everything that comes along with that, with wife, motherhood, everything else, is secondary 
to what the primary obligations, which are to be an Oved Hashem and an observer of mitzvot. So all of that is to say that while we sometimes, we often, I think, in our community, talk about women's familial obligations as the primary obligations, I think it's worth saying that primarily as Jewish women, our obligations are to serve Hashem um, in the observance of mitzvot. What exactly that looks like might look different for us, but that is our primary obligation. Uh, and then for some women in some for some women in their lives, in some stages of lives, that will manifest in family, child care. But, right, that's not true for every woman. It's not true for every woman all the time. And even if for whatever reason, that's not what a woman is busy or occupied with, she has the, the obligations of being an Oved Hashem. Great. And there I go back and forth between myself and my tops. So I will keep doing that for the rest of the evening. But then there's a lot of other stuff also. Um, and I actually, one of the things I love to do is make fun of secular women's cooking magazines in their run-up to Thanksgiving editions. Because you get them writing about preparations for Thanksgiving like they are planning for the D-Day invasion of Normandy in 1944. Three weeks before Thanksgiving, order a turkey. Two weeks before Thanksgiving. And they're like giving you step-by-step instructions for a month to make one stinking Thanksgiving dinner. And you're like, toots, in Tishrei, I do that four times for Rosh Hashanah and then four times for the first days of Sukkot and four times for the last days of Sukkot. And if it's three-day emptives, I do it more than that, right? So we are carrying kind of expectations for ourselves. Your average American woman does once a year and it takes her a month to get ready. And we're doing that. We just went through Shavuos again and again and again. Is that what Hashem expects of us in terms of Simchas Yantif? Is that what we've come to expect out of a certain culture of food and cooking and foodiness and you know, and cooking magazines, and you'll pardon me, the term that sometimes uses food porn, right? You get one of these from cooking magazines, and it shows you this, like, really super fancy new, and now you're supposed to, and then, like, now you can't just make the dessert, and now you have to decorate it with a, with a sauce, and a crumble, and a leaf, and a bow, and I don't know what, and now there's six steps in every step. So that's a set of expectations, and that's not Hashem's expectation of us, but it's an expectation that many of us carry. The world we live in, I don't have to belabor this point, we all understand Many to most to all of us are living in homes that have to be to working parent homes in order to keep the lights on. Even if we love our careers, we love our jobs, we want to be working, we love what we're doing, it is also a reality that for many of us it is a matter of necessity. Is that what Hashem wants us? That's the structure of a society and a world we live in and a life that we're living. So we're carrying all of things and we're also working full-time jobs outside the home. Um, we have developed, and here is a place where I, I wonder if this COVID experience is going to change things. We had developed a world of, of making ourselves be spinning with a certain kind of busyness that's communal and cultural and social. And I'm not exactly ready to say it's what Hashem wants of us. So somebody close to you gets engaged, you can easily have six smachot out of that simcha. There's the immediate l'chaim for the family, and there's the vart, and there's a shower, and there's a Shabbos kala, and there's a wedding, and there's a shower brachos, and that's not even hard if someone who's close to you, or, you know, substitute shop scholar for ofrof if it's a boy, not a girl. If someone close to you gets engaged or married, and there are six different simchas you have to be out of the house for. And now I'm, I'm, you know, spinning, and I'm busy, and I'm running, and I'm racing, and I can't keep on top of everything I have to do. Um, or, you know, something else I like to talk about. I'm past the stage of my life. Now my youngest, so you probably heard making noise in the background because by eight o'clock at night, I can't fight to keep my house quiet. It's a, it's a lost cause. It's all I can do to keep it quiet during the day. Um, so I'm past the preschool stage. But I was that mother who like, oh, it was the mock seder and I forgot to send in the mock seder stuff. And once a week, the whole, the whole eight weeks in a row, they're learning Hebrew colors. He's supposed to come in with a red shirt, then an orange shirt, then an yellow shirt, then a green shirt. Then a... 
yeah, you have all those colored solid t-shirts for all your kids. I never had them. And then it was pink day. And I'm like, he's a five-year-old boy. I don't have a pink t-shirt for him, you know? Um, and so that's something else that we're busy and we're stressed. At. And so there's so much stuff we are asking ourselves to carry. And it is impossible. There is no one person who can do all this. And some of it's what Hashem wants of us because I'm feeling guilty that I'm not davening enough or I didn't go to a shear or somebody told me about some inspiring challah bake and I'm like buying challah. So you joking? It'll be, you know, Samix is going to be fine this week. Just thank you. Or, you know, wherever you are. Grand and Essex works great for me. Leave me alone. Not baking challah this week. I don't care what other 39 women you have lined up. So parts of it are those, but then also parts of it are the cultural and the communal in all the different ways they play out and parts of it are the financial realities of our world and parts of it are all the things that have somehow gotten piled up onto each other to create a situation in which I think actually many from women feel guilty all the time. Like they're always not doing enough. We are doing a ton. We are trying to do the impossible and we somehow also manage to be feeling bad about that all the time. Would you say that any of this is new or this is sort of how it's always been to be a Jewish woman? Absolutely not how it's always been. And here I will, I will put on my, um, I have professional training as a historian hat. <laughs> I will flex that historian muscle. Absolutely not how it has always been. Um, there have been many changes. Look, one of the changes is the change of feminism, which we don't have to, we could pretend is not a thing in the firm community, but it's totally a thing in the firm community. My great-grandmother didn't have an idea in her head that she was supposed to go to shul and have religiously meaningful experiences for herself in shul. She was going to stay home with the kids. Her husband was going to go to shul. And many of us have gotten, we women, we have gotten solid Torah educations, often for a year or years beyond high school, not just through high school. And we ourselves have our own religious lives, our own Torah learning lives, our own. And we could say whatever we want, but that is a manifestation of feminism as well. Saying that women themselves should have their own religious experiences and their own religious lives and that that matters. And we shouldn't just accept that we're going to be the wives and mothers at home while the men pull down the davening Torah learning fort is an expression of, you want to argue with me about it, we can argue about it, but it's a question of feminist sensibilities coming into the firm community. But with that leaves many women, it's like with another thing I'm supposed to be doing. Oh, now I also feel guilty that I'm not going to a shear, or I also feel guilty that I'm not learning, or I also feel guilty that I'm not getting to shul early enough. So that's one change. The two working parents is absolutely a change. It is a manifestation of all kinds of changes in the economic structures of American life and of the firm community that I don't have to believe right now, but it is absolutely a change. The six simchas out of one simcha is absolutely a change. Um, it's also, you know, when I was a kid growing up in Brooklyn, so we did this thing called going to the country for the summer, right? So that meant you went up to the Catskills. Catskills are a two-hour drive from Brooklyn. My mother and most women of her generation did not and do not drive on highways. I don't even know if you know this is a thing. Women who drive on local streets but don't drive on highways. Terrified above 45 miles an hour. My mother and other women of her generation don't drive on highways. So once they were up in the country for the summer, they were staying put. They couldn't go back down. So if you got invited to a wedding while you were up in the Catskills, you were in a wedding. You were in the Catskills, sorry. And you weren't going to the wedding. And you said, I'm sorry, I can't come. And everybody understood it. My younger sister, who has a house up there now, is routinely driving. Any summer, it could happen two, three times, that she's driving three and a half hours from the Catskills down to Lakewood for a wedding, and then three and a half hours back. So the shift in like what's normal and what's expected and what's doable and how far are you expected to drive for what, these are changes in our lives. They absolutely are. And certainly the whole food whatever culture if I told you about food in America in the 1980s, when romaine lettuce was this exotic food we ate only from Marar, and all lettuce was iceberg lettuce, and vegetables came out of a can, this is totally true. We ate canned green beans and canned beets and canned asparagus. Nobody was making crumbles and drizzles and leaves and all manner of, you know, um, 
so yes, all of these things have added in a variety of ways. Um, and we might think any one of them, we might say, oh, I actually think that's good, or I think that's nice, or I think that's a benefit. But when all of us expect all of them of ourselves all the time, that's when we're all just feeling guilty. If a woman has certain expectations of her halachic standards that, that conflicts with her personal goals, such as if a woman wants to be an Olympic swimmer and that conflicts with her, you know, it's her aspiration to do that professionally, but it conflicts with something that is a pressure she feels halachically. I know personally our daughter wants to be like a professional singer and we're conflicted about how much do we encourage her to, you know, work on her singing and how much do we drill into her that like really maybe that's not what Hashem wants of you. So if, if someone is experiencing that sort of conflict with competing values, what, what would you get, what advice would you have for her? So I've actually thought about this a lot in the context between the difference between the yeshivish world that I grew up in and the modern Orthodox world that I live in and work in now. I think in the yeshivish world, and this, by the way, again, I know nothing about unorthodox, but here's something that makes that line from unorthodox not ring true to me. In the writer wing world, it is taken for granted that everybody is expected to sacrifice for their avodat Hashem, and it is certainly not only women. I don't even know if it's primarily women. So that I grew up in the, the kind of slice of the world I grew up in I went to Broadway shows. I did consume some pop culture. My father, my brothers, never. Would never. They wouldn't go hear a woman sing. They don't consume any, any mass media movies, whatever it is, where there's a chance that they're going to see a woman who's inappropriately dressed, which is uh, any of them. Um, and so, in fact, there were ways in which I had more freedom in the world than they did because, on the other hand, I was a serious dancer. I took ballet seriously as a kid. And when I hit about 13... My ballet teacher said to me it was time to start partnering classes. And it was just obvious to me, like, okay, that's over now. It wasn't, it wasn't a fight. It wasn't a negotiation. It wasn't a conversation with my parents. never crossed my mind that I was going to take partnering classes. Partnering, right? We will get partnering. So once I was supposed to start dancing with the boys, that was over and that was done. And, and that was clearly the way that was going to go. I look at my modern Orthodox kids. And for them, what modern Orthodoxy means is the idea that you can be an observant Jew and you can participate in what the world has to offer. That's definitional to what modern Orthodoxy is. So if I come along now and say, oh, no, wait, now you got to stop. It's like, what do you mean? <laughs> That's not what I was told this whole enterprise is about. And I do think, and I, I've thought about this and I've written about this, the extent to which the Haredi world, the yeshiva world, whatever you want to call it, the right-wing world, builds the muscles of sacrifice in a way that the monorthodox world doesn't because the whole value proposition of the monorthodox world is that you can both and, it's not either or. Now, obviously, the modern Orthodox world doesn't mean you can both and everything. But we emphasize both and as like a very real value. And then you run into a brick wall and people are like, what the heck? So first, I'm going to tell you about a brick wall example. And then I'll go back about some of the both ending. I found this very clearly in the discussions early in COVID time about mikvah, where the questions about going to mikvah during COVID and women who said, even if you tell me it's safe, I don't feel safe. I don't feel comfortable. So what are you going to do for me, rabbi? And the rabbis were like, nothing. You have to go to mikvah. And if you don't go to mikvah, then I cannot make the restrictions on a, on a woman who's a need on a couple where the woman's a need to go away. And uh, some women, particularly some of my former students, those young women in their 20s who are graduates of mine, were just like, well, you, you got to do something for us. And I ended up in a long conversation actually on Twitter with a graduate of mine that became a very interesting event that we ran one evening that we had 120 um, people come to, to talk about this, this idea that sometimes the halacha says, sorry, just no. 
And if we expect that, like, but at the end of the day, somehow we should be able to both end it, then when the halacha is just like, sorry, but no, we're like, where that come from? And in a world in which you, you, you absolutely knew that you weren't going to be a singer or you were going to be a singer in like all these all women's drama troops, whatever they are, and you absolutely knew you weren't going to be a dancer and you absolutely knew you weren't going to be a gymnast, you've built muscles for a certain kind of... So here's something I sometimes say about the modern orthodox world. Um, I have heard many times, if you know any of the people represented in any of these stories, this, I imply no criticism about any of these people. They're all great. The team that was supposed to compete in the mock trial tournament that was supposed to be on Friday night, that was one Monorthodox high school team. And then there was a different Monorthodox high school team in a different state that was supposed to compete in the state basketball championship that was supposed to be on Shabbos. And there's the Monorthodox girl who was playing an Olympic caliber in a sport. And there was a and there was a, a conflict with Shabbos. And there's actually a Israeli from woman who's the mother of five kids and totally true story. I taught her when she was in high school. I taught her Manhattan High School for Girls a million years ago, who's a serious marathon runner. And she's supposed to run in the marathon, the Olympics, which are now postponed, the Olympics in Japan, and the marathon conflicts with Shabbos, right? All these different kinds of stories. In the Haredi world, those stories as hero stories would end with, so they gave up XYZ and they kept Shabbos. That's what the hero story is. In the modern orthodox world, the hero story is, you know, so they got their lawyers and the OU's whatever civic action, public action lawyer people, Nathan Diamond called up from Washington, D.C., and they got the tournament moved so that they could both compete and keep Shabbos, right? Our, our hero stories are stories of both end. They're not stories of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And I think that that um, doesn't equip us well for when halacha genuinely demands, like, okay, sorry. And I don't buy the assumption, you could say this is my Brooklyn talking, I, I don't buy the assumption that, like, at the end of the day, it's always supposed to work out in the way we want to. I don't know, we're in the history of the Jewish people. We see evidence that keeping halacha always works out in a way that, you know, is the way you want to. No, sometimes it doesn't. And, uh, but having said all of that, I will also say that that's if you're talking about halachic conflicts. In terms of social pressures or norms from women can't do this or from women can't do that, you know, can't have this kind of job, can't have that kind of career, can't be involved in that kind of way. The only people that it has to work for are your immediate family. Your spouse and your children have to feel like it's working for them. And it is absolutely nobody else's slightest bit of business. Mm -hmm. um, and if somebody explains to you why a firm woman can't be a physician and can't be an attorney and can't be, I don't know, whatever they tell you, you can't be because the hours are too long. You're going to be away from the house too much. The only person whose business that is are the people who are living in the house with you who you might or may not be away from. And if you and they are figuring out how to make it work, then come up with a very, very polite way to tell the dentist to put a sock in it. Do you have advice for how to express that to someone who's struggling with this, that there's a clear halakhic barrier, there's a wall there? Um, do you just say, sorry, no, you can't do this? Or have you found a way to empathically <laughs> convey yeah. that? So that's actually a really interesting question. Um, because I want to be honest about the fact that some amount of this is shaped in me by my own upbringing, not by, you know, intellectual commitments I talked myself into. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you don't quite feel that the same way, it's hard to talk yourself into it, especially when it does feel like a loss or a sacrifice. Um, in my middle age, here's something that's compelling to me. I don't think it's been compelling to me when I was 15 if it wasn't otherwise compelling to me. And I don't know if it's compelling to anyone else. But here's something in my middle age is compelling to me. Um, and again, it's something I just, I, I just alluded to, which is there's an enormously long history of Jewish people sacrificing for their Avodah Hashem, sacrificing for the Torah and Mitzvot. 
that's not really something I've ever been asked to do. I've been very lucky. We have been very lucky. We've been very fortunate. We live in a world that's comfortable and easy. And, and if at some point, and I actually, I first felt it when we were going into Pesach this year and making Starim again in COVID land. And my parents were by themselves in their house, not with anybody for Yom Tif, And we were having no guests for Yom Tif, And we usually have a household guest all Yom Tif. And I felt like if like for the first time making Pesach is hard for me, not, you know, and I'm making it in a difficult and less than optimal circumstance, that that's like a chance to connect to an entire history of the Jewish people, of people who made Pesach in much less optimal circumstances than I do. And it's like my chance to finally earn my place in that history of Klal Yisrael, of people who are, who are, you know, paying their dues, if we can say that. I don't know if that speaks to everybody. I think a young woman who is exceptionally talented and has a beautiful voice and you're like, sorry, no, you can't. Um, or a young woman who feels called to a career or a role that within the from world is not available to her. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I think to some extent, I, I, I'm not sure what convinces somebody if she's not already um, bought in. And again, I think that if you're in the right wing world where it looks like everybody is sacrificing, it might be easier. Mm-hmm. And if you're in a world in which it looks like, you know, <laughs> the men can go to Hamilton, but the women can't lay in shul. You're like, I don't get it. If you're in a world in which you can't do this and you can't do that, I get that the Allah keeps me from doing things and keeps you from doing things. And that's how it plays out. Yeah. In a case where someone isn't being told by the community that there's an expectation that is non-halachics and therefore they feel pressurized, but it's sort of internal, the sort of like Chava versus Isha dynamic within a person is sort of conflicting. So if a stereotypical woman gets offered a career that involves a lot of travel, she'll be away from home a lot. And it could be some part of the voice that's telling her, you know, you have to stay home with your family is coming from the community, but some of it might be internal. And I wonder if you could speak to how those those calculations break down. It might be very individualized, but sort of broad strokes, what that analysis between, there's something God wants-ish of me in family, not as halakhically clear as like, don't swim in an Olympic pool in front of a million people in a tiny bathing suit, but something that's clearly a value, um, but not a black and white so concrete. And then there's something that could also be a value if just for me personally, because I feel like the self-fulfillment, actualization, how that conversation could, could go on. Yeah, so I think, first of all, it's really important to know who gets to have a, a voice or a way in on that conversation and who doesn't. Random yentas who have opinions about you or your career, mm, not interested. I will say, probably not earning myself uh, great fans, that I'm not sure that like the parental generation gets to weigh in on this, right? First of all, they grew up in other realities. Second of all, obviously your immediate family does get to weigh in. And that might be a conversation about what's this going to cost us? And not necessarily cost us financially, right? Cost us in terms of hours away from home. What's this going to benefit you? What is this? What are the trade-offs we have to make? In the course of, I, I work as an educator and a high school administrator. I work in very full-time kinds of roles. I'm out of the house a lot at night. I'm away on weekends. I'm away on Shabbatonim. I'm away on whatever it is. I have both over the course of my professional life missed things that some people would consider to be like totally horrifying that I missed because professionally I felt like I needed to. I have a daughter who is now a sophomore in high school whose sitter play I missed, whatever age she was when you get a sitter play. She was five, four, five, whatever. Um, because I was like the 12th grade grade dean in SR High School and they were going on their senior trip and whatever it was, I thought I had to go on the senior trip. So I went to the rehearsal for her sitter play 
like the dress rehearsal. Her father and all four of her grandparents went to her sitter play. I just want to be clear. This is not like nobody was at the sitter play. And she still brings up to me that I missed her sitter play. And people I tell this story to are still aghast that I missed her sitter play, even though they would have no problem with a father missing a sitter play for work. They'd have a mother missing a sitter play for work, even if I was at the dress rehearsal and everybody else was at the sitter play is like unbelievable. Um, uh, yeah. So first of all, I might actually not be Jewish because I don't have the gene for feeling guilty. I, just, I don't feel guilty about that then or now. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a whim. It was a thought through decision. For whatever reasons, I thought it made sense at the time in the context of the time it made sense. And I thought about how I was providing her and for her and, you know, okay, but she still is entitled to an opinion, I guess. Other people, not entitled to opinion. But there have been other times when I have recalibrated, when I've looked around in my house and I've realized I'm out too much at night or my kids need me. This is something you find. I found the transition. You think little kids are hard, but little kids you put to sleep at 7.30 at night and or 8 o'clock at night and then they're asleep. And they don't care if I go out to a school hockey game or a school basketball game after they're asleep. And in my earlier years as a teacher, I went to many more sports games. And then at some point, my kids were not little kids who go to sleep at 7.30 or 8. And they're up and they want me. And it makes a difference to them if I'm home. And I started going to many fewer sports games. At this point, I basically only go to playoff games. I don't go to regular season high school sports games because I have big kids in the, or bigger kids around who need me. So those recalibrations happen all the time and have to happen all the time. Um, and in both directions is now a time when I can take on more is now a time when I have to step back and take on less either because in general, the rhythm of my family's life is evolving or because a particular kid with a particular set of needs needs me more now. Um, I have taken kids with me on professional travel when it seemed like individual kids needed to come with me or, you know, so there are many ways of um, working that out. But here is something I will say clearly. I am a feminist. I think we as women our fulfillment, satisfaction, sense of meaning in our work is worth something, is valuable, matters. That's not going to be the same thing for everybody. I don't, I don't think that being a feminist means that everybody has to want to work outside the home. I don't think it means that everybody has to want to get their fulfillment from their career. I have sisters who have chosen careers that are step back careers because for them, their primary fulfillment is going to come from being more available um, at home and in their involvement with family. Um, I and sisters who are younger than I am who feel like this is what I'm doing right now and later I may do something different later on in life. I feel like my work is valuable and meaningful. It means a lot to me and I really enjoy it and I invest in it and I work on it. And I don't have to answer to anybody else about when I am home or when I'm not home. And within my own family, I do. I do have to check and recalibrate. Is this working for, you know, for my immediate family? And if it's not, are there times when I need to reconsider it? I will say one other thing about this, which is, it is very important, and here I will quote, um, okay, I'll tell you what I'm quoting in a second. It is very important to disaggregate what you need to be doing and what needs to get done, because there are things that need to get done, but you don't need to be doing. So I will now quote two people, three people actually, two are two economists from the New York Times Magazine, and one is um, a very important hush of a woman, a great Milumedet, a very important teacher of Torah, who was Nifter last month and uh, about whom I wrote something in Tablet Magazine, which oddly enough got a lot of interest because it turns out the whole world wants to read um, about Rebetz and Chaya Azband, uh, which I might not have guessed, but okay. So I'm gonna quote Rebetz and Azband in a minute, but first let me quote two economists in the New York Times Magazine. Times Magazine a few years ago did an article about two rising star young economists, and their basic thing was we do a, we do a rigorous cost-benefit analysis of every minute of our day. And we have decided that investing in our own, they were talking about their careers, investing in our own careers is the best investment we can make now. 
And so we pay people to do everything for us, make meals, clean our house, do our laundry, everything, because that time is much better spent right now, doing more economics research, publishing more papers, advancing our careers. That's the best use of our, right, they're economists, they think this way. That's the best use of the limited resources that is our time. Washing dishes, total waste of my time. I'm paying somebody to wash my dishes. So that was these two economists. Rebetzin Osband, it's hard to describe her in just a few sentences. She was the founder and dean of Yavne Seminary in Cleveland, where I was privileged to learn for a year. She was a remarkable woman, um, the daughter and granddaughter and wife of Telzerasha Yeshiva, but she was often described that way. She was a remarkable woman in her own right, knew a tremendous amount of Torah, taught a tremendous amount of Torah to, I don't know how many students over the years does, is it's a mitzvah to raise your children. It's not a mitzvah to clean up after your children. And then she would encourage us to hire household help. And she wasn't talking to girls who were coming from wealthy non-Orthodox homes. She was talking to girls who were coming from yeshivish homes who were going to have many fewer resources. But her point was, what are you allocating your time for? And I've sometimes said this, and people have said to me, you know, you're assuming people have loads of resources and loads of money, and that's expensive. First of all, Rebson Osman was talking about even to people, again, who really didn't have resources. It might be true that for some people it's not accessible. But for other people, it might be a choice to spend less money on something else and more money on this. Um, and if having household help enables you to running smoothly, to have the job you want, to be present for your kids when you're present for your kids, and not to be running around in the morning going, is anyone a clean shirt? Did anyone see a clean shirt? Nobody has a clean shirt. Then um, that's a very good investment in lots of people's sanity. I have more to say on this topic, but I'll stop. You could ask me more questions. I have lots more to say on the topic of household help. Welcome to Q-Talking. Um, an analogy that you mentioned in one of your talks that you gave that I heard a recording of online was um, instead of saying that you're dropping a ball because you're juggling too much to intentionally put one down. And that's something that I've really taken with me throughout uh, a lot of life decisions <laughs> that I've made. Um, and that, that's a bigger conversation. That gets back to the earlier conversation of all the things that we, that we not even consciously pile on as expectations for ourselves. And it's like, like a real audit of what am I asking of myself and what makes sense for me? And am I asking this of myself because it's a value to me? It's a value to my husband. It's a value to my kids. I think it's a value to your bonus shalom or just like, I don't know, I read it from women's magazine and it said the new thing we're all supposed to be doing is folding our napkins into complicated origami shapes before Shabbos because that's the newest thing to have on your Shabbos table. So now I'm spending three hours on Friday afternoon. I'm, that's a joke, but it's not a joke because we do things that are just as silly as that without acknowledging it. You know, Spending three hours on Friday afternoon doing origami. Okay, I'm putting down origami. Um, so one example that I give all the time is that I talk about So I happen to live in Washington Heights in Upper Manhattan, see my beautiful George Washington Bridge behind me. That's not a real George Washington Bridge, it's a virtual background. But yes, I do live very close to the George Washington Bridge. So I live in a community which there is no, no one's cute and sticky and clever and fancy about Shalachmano, so it's really good. There's no Shalachmano pressure at all in my community. But in many communities, people are doing themes and they're doing clever and they're doing creative and they're doing poems and they're doing... And it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's great if that's your thing. But if that's not your thing, instead of feeling like, oh, I'm a failure and I have a schleppy, nerdy, dweeby Shalachmanos and I can't make it fancy and I can't make it cute, I give you permission to say, this is the ball I'm putting down. I am going to give whatever Mishlach Manot I give, or I'm going to give money to Tzedakah and give out those cards and give my halachically required minimum Mishlach Manot and call it a day and, and not to feel um, bad about the thing you're not doing. It's one thing to say, here's something I really think is a value and I'm struggling to do it, in which case, actually, maybe the struggle is worth it. Um, or I don't even know that I think it's a value. It just seems like everybody around me thinks I should be expecting to do this and now I feel bad that I'm not doing it. Put that ball down. 
Do you have um, advice that you can give to a woman who would like to um, be going to shul more regularly or going to shirim in person when that's uh, applicable <laughs> um, more regularly? Um, because that's how she feels she is fulfilled um, spiritually, or that's how she wants to, you know, that's how she wants to be an Obed at Hashem, but she feels like her family is holding her back from that. Um, that's something that I've heard from women in the community that they used to love going to, you know, being there on time for Shachars in the morning uh, every Shabbos, and they can't do that anymore. Yeah, so I'm going to say two things I've said already. The first is, I, and I just want to give this preface, because the last thing I want is for more women to be beating themselves up more or feeling more guilty. If you're perfectly happy to stay at home Shabbos morning and not go to shul, you're perfectly happy not to go to a shir for the next 15 years, that's great. You're busy now juggling a house full of little kids or a house full of, of difficult teenagers or whatever you're juggling a house full of and living the life you're living, and that's fine. And I'm not interested in making anybody feel guilty. But, but many years ago uh, in the Heights, we were doing a Shavuos learning program for women. We're not staying up all night. I haven't stayed up all night since I was, no, no, whatever. So Shavuos during the day, we had a round robin of women. Each woman was going to give a shear or teach us something for half an hour and people in the community could come and hear. And I was talking to one of my Haredi sisters and she was horrified. She said to me, you're leaving your husband to watch the kids on Shavuos day so you can go learn. Like you should be watching the kids so he can go learn. So I said to her, happens to be I have a full-time babysitter. And she was, was a weekday, and my babysitter's coming anyway. I said, but honestly, if what it takes is my husband giving up an hour of his learning to stay with the kids so that I can go feel like I'm having yomtif instead of I'm washing dishes, setting a table, cooking a meal, washing dishes, setting a table, cooking a meal, trade-off. So I, my sister's totally horrified. But that trade-off is worth it. And that's a conversation that you have, presumably together with somebody who also values your, I couldn't imagine in a million years myself doing this, but I knew a family once that switched off which parent went to Hashkam and which parent went to Main Minion because both parents want to be able to daven in Shul and Shabbos morning. Um, and, uh, and that was how it made it work. And then a different story is uh, I, at some point, had my kids with a non-Jewish babysitter in Yom Kippur. I mean, that's the only babysitter who's coming on Yom Kippur. And a neighbor expressed some sort of dismay that like my kids were in the park all day with a non-Jewish babysitter. And I said, my trade-off is my two-year-old could be in the park all day with a non-Jewish babysitter and I can get to shul. Or my Yom Kippur can feel for me like, you know, any other day plus fasting, chasing my two-year-old around my apartment. And I would rather prioritize having Yom Kippur that feels religiously meaningful for me. Again, if you if you say either I would rather be home with my kids on Yom Kippur or I can't even face the thought of going back to shul, I am not here to make anybody feel guilty. But I also don't want you to feel guilty if you want to leave your kid with the babysitter whole Yom Kippur so you can go to shul. Your kid's two years old. They don't know the difference anyway. Um, I'm sure you'll find somebody who's a much better, you know, parent and educator than I am who will say no, no. The difference between them spending Yom Kippur in your presence and, and picking up on the sense of Kedusha from you or spending the day with a non-Jewish babysitter is tremendous. I think our own religious lives matter and our ability to have our own religious lives matter. And if that means I'm leaving the kids with a non-Jewish babysitter for a few hours on Yom Kippur um, so I can go to shul, I'm very comfortable with that. So that's, that's a question of how, you know, the, the exact how you work out the logistics are a question within your own relationship and your own family and your own everything else. But it's a question of do you say that that's a value that's worth working out logistics for? And I want to say absolutely, yes, it's a value. And if the conversation comes down to technically who's obligated and who's not obligated, I, I am not there for that. I am not there for a conversation that says that women's need to feel like they're part of the Jewish community, like they're of Dod Hashem, like they're connected to this enterprise of Judaism. That doesn't matter because technically we're not obligated in a minion. That, that's, I'm not on board with that program.
And I will just say, I mean, we, we could go here or not, but there are a lot of conversations now happening around the reopening of shuls and the limits on numbers of people who can go to shul that are, um, I'm having a very hard time with. Not, I want to say very clearly, I, I, is I not clear about this? I'm an Orthodox Jew. The only minyan in my davenin are minyan where women don't count in a minyan. I, I'm cool with that. I understand how that works. I don't have a problem with that. I'm not, you know, I'm not pushing for, we should now count 10 adults in a minyan, man or woman. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that when a shul blithely and without thinking about it says, so only men can come to minyan and no one's even acknowledging the fact, like, what does it mean that you've just told half of your community that they're not invited? And again, I'm not saying that they should be invited. If you need to make a minion, you need to only have 10 adults there. Those 10 adults have to be male adults. I get all that. Are you even thinking about that as, as a loss to somebody, as a harm to somebody? Are you addressing that as a loss? Does it not even cross your mind that it's a loss because you don't think of half of your community as being part of your community? So I actually wrote something on this topic um, right before Shavuos in a, in a burst of frustrated inspiration and was planning to post it in the places where I post things that I write and share with the world. And then I turned on my, uh, my whatever computer phone after Shavuos and discovered that the world had blown up with Black Lives Matter protests. And it didn't seem the right time to post my thing about women in shul, but maybe I'll get back to that. Our community is leaving spots open for women to attend Minyanim. That's right. So, so some communities are, and some communities have said they won't reopen until. And then I have to say from, from a shul that I was, uh, I was surprised to see some of the shuls from which I saw emails that just said 10 men and didn't even acknowledge that there was any loss or cost or half of a community that was being left out of that. So I think it sounds like to the shuls, there's a lot to be said. I've seen shuls saying things like we are having a minion, but shul is not open language like that. That makes it very clear that as a community, it's not open, but to a woman herself who, let's say, has decided to make that juggle of switching off her hashkama, who does consistently go, for whom this is a part of what makes her avodah Hashem hers, what would you say to the, to the woman who finds herself not in Zarchinam, but in a community where they are, for whatever reason right now, only maybe their numbers or maybe just the structure of what they're allowing is just 10 men at a minion, and for, for women, who that, that's really difficult for them. What would you advise the woman? How would you have her think about it? What, what would you say? Yeah, I think that this actually, this to me is actually a very interesting place where when people talk about how this COVID thing may change our community, they very often are talking about like financial kinds of things. You know, what's going to happen to schools or schools or institutions? And that is, I am not minimizing that individually on the individual level of families that are going to suffer and lose on the institutional level it's going to cost our institutions there's going to be plenty of that but i do think that there are other places and other ways in which we've kind of papered things over that are going to be um raised in a in a sharper way uh you could decide to cut this whole part of the podcast out if you decide you don't want to run any of it and that is that some of the issues around gender and orthodoxy we have papered over, sometimes by throwing money at them. So only men can be Orthodox rabbis, but there's this obvious kind of disconnect with the way we live now. So instead we will add money for congregational scholars or Yoatzot Halacha or, or educational, whatever we call the titles for other roles in the shul to create professional roles for women, but Orthodox rabbis can only be men. 
Okay, and then what happens when the shul says budget's being cut? We don't have enough money for all this. We only have enough money for one position. Um, we can't bring in the women as scholars, right? Many shuls have done like women as scholars and residents coming in. Again, as a way of putting women up in front of the shul in leadership roles and Torah teaching roles. Well, guess what? The scholar and residence budget is gone because that was money that we don't have anymore. Um, and I want to say very clearly what I'm not suggesting in case it's, it's not very clear. I am not suggesting that the mainstream Orthodox community is now going to make women be rabbis as a result of COVID. That's not what I'm suggesting, nor am I suggesting they should. I'm only saying that certain issues we didn't have to face directly and confront directly. What is the role and voice and place of women as leaders in our community? It's easier to not confront if you could say, yes, of course, I mean, it's sexual, the rabbis are only men, but we have a woman who is in a this role or in a that role or women who come in and speak or a women's series or a woman this, and now the budget's being cut and what's necessary and what's not necessary. So I think a similar thing with this inviting women into shul, um, there is, it is fun, and here's my, I'm getting to my answer to your question, right? It is fundamentally difficult in the modern world to say, that halacha treats men and women differently, as halacha treats straight people and gay people differently, as halacha treats all different kinds of classifications differently, that in a 21st century Western mindset, we are much more egalitarian about all these kinds of things. Um, and to some extent, the way we've dealt with it as a community, I mean, obviously, at, at the, at the you know, leftmost edges of orthodoxy, they've dealt with it differently. But in the mainstream, let's say, centrist and non-orthodox community, one of the ways we've dealt with it is to not exactly deal with it and to say, let's invite women into the community and bring them into the community and involve them and engage them and never address the technical issues that they don't count for a minion or they, in, in you know, whatever ways we can sort of, and when you say 10 people can be in a building and those 10 people have to be the 10 people who make up a minion, you can no longer avoid facing directly that we are saying that our community is constituted by the presence of men and not by the presence of women. Um, and that's going to make us, I think, have some, have some, I, I would hope that's going to make us have some very real conversations about what does it look like and mean to continue to be observant of halacha and also to really mean it when we say that women are, I mean, women are, this is, this is now, we don't have to mean anything. Women are half the from community. But what do you mean when we really say that women are part of the community and not just when push comes to shove, sorry. Um, so I, I think that there are places where the, the post-COVID processing is not just going to be about financial resources and who has them, but there's like going to be a lot of other stuff that has to, I think, get faced and worked through. Any um, final thoughts on any of the topics that we brought up today, messages overall for women during this time in general, dealing with these sorts of questions as they come up in life to leave us with? Um, I want to I think three things quickly. The first thing is about the immediate time you're in right now. Um, and I just want to say that it's really hard. It's really hard for everybody. It's really hard for different people in different ways. Whatever you're doing is great. If your kids are watching whatever, YouTube and playing video games for 14 hours a day and eating gummy beers for three meals a day, it's all fine. This will be over eventually and they'll stop watching and they'll eat food, and everybody will survive, um, and making ourselves feel bad or feel guilty about that in the middle of a global pandemic, and our kids are all at home, and we're all supposed to be doing our jobs while we're running school, and who knows what, that our kids are also not eating three perfectly balanced meals a day, and, and having limited screen time, whatever, you're all doing 
what you can in a totally impossible situation, and it's fine. But more broadly, I want to say that although it's not usually a global pandemic and all that insanity, we are all always, I think, trying to do too much. Um, we are. We are asking too much of ourselves because we are combining the expectations of traditional gender roles. You should be the one, you know, putting all the yamtif meals on the table, doing all the cooking, doing all the maintaining the house, but also modern foodie culture, right? But also 21st century women, you go girl, lean in, go have yourself a great professional career, but also from I need two incomes to pay tuition, but also I went for a year of seminary or two years or I, then I went to Stern and I love to learn and I want to learn and Dav and I should find time to do that, but also, but also, but also. And by the time we're done piling all these expectations upon ourselves, we've created a complete impossibility, which means two things that I want to say to, to all of us. One is cut yourself some slack, give yourself some, a, a break, forgive yourself for what you're not doing. You're doing as much as you can reasonably be expected to do as well as anybody could do it. Everything's going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Your kids are going to be fine. Everyone's, I mean, I hope you're going to be fine. Your kids are definitely going to be fine. Everybody's going to be fine. And um, put down balls. Not I'm terrible and I'm a failure and I'm a slacker and I'm, I'm failing at things. What am I going to consciously say, this is not something I'm trying to do right now? Again, I have an eight-year-old who you've probably heard in the background. And I'm working a full-time job from home, and he's at home kind of in school. And we are trying to make all these things work. And I have given up on monitoring how much time a day he spends on the device. And I'll have to tell you, I can't. I, I, the playgrounds are closed. I, he can't be with friends. I, I can't. I could drag him out by his ear for a walk around the block once a day, maybe on a good day. There will be a time when we'll all get life back to normal. Anyway, I'm back to talking about the pandemic. I was supposed to be talking about the pandemic. But even in not pandemic time, even in not pandemic time, just saying, here's something I can't take care of right now. Here's something I can't do right now. Here's something I can't, you know, and, and, and right now it could be for the next decade. Right now it doesn't have to be this week. And I'm not trying. And I'm not trying. I'm not making myself crazy. Um, and the last thing that I'll say is nothing here is fixed. It's not because you hit on a balance or something that works for you or that doesn't work for you that's right or that's not right now, that that's how it is forever. And that goes in both directions. You can say, I'm, I'm uh, pulling back right now because my family needs me or I'm pulling back right now because I'm feeling overwhelmed. And you know what? Five years from now, I'll go back into it. That's fine. And it's also fine to say that right now I'm going full speed ahead in my career or full speed ahead in something else. And, and then maybe there'll be a time to recalibrate down the line. Um, none of these things is, is permanent or fixed in the sense that once you've made a decision, you're stuck with it forever. You're allowed to change your mind. My mother, my mother uh, always said to me when I was a kid, and I would like make a decision about something and then very immaturely dig in my heels and not, you know, my mother would say to me, grown-ups change their minds. That was her way of trying to encourage me not to be silly and stubborn. Grown-ups change their minds. Um, and in, in lots of ways, you're right. You're allowed to say the career I thought I wanted. And you're also allowed to say, I thought I wanted to be a stay-at-home mother. And I've done this for two years and I'm climbing the walls and actually I don't. Um, or that worked for me then, it doesn't work for me now. All these things are perfectly fine things to say. Um, and uh, we're working really hard to do a very lot. And if we could spend a little bit more time being kind to ourselves and forgiving to ourselves and giving ourselves permission not to try to do everything, whether that means pulling a bowl down or paying somebody to carry some of the bowls for us, um, you're all doing plenty. What you're doing is plenty. The goal should be to figure out how to keep all of us um, well, sane, healthy, happy in our lives, in our families, in our Avodah Hashem, not feeling guilty all the time.
Don't like for a woman feeling guilty. Hate that. Wow. Thank you so much. This has been such an incredible conversation, very enlightening. Um, as always, the things that you say are, you know, they ring true for me and they make me feel better about everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I can't thank you enough for Last being Last and only goal. <laughs> thank you so much. You're very, very welcome. It was really my pleasure. <laughs>